0: Thanks for listening and sharing our Body Politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. We just lived through one heck of a week, complete with marching bands. And that, of course, is the Howard University Marching Band welcoming the new vice president, their alum. Kamala Harris, vice president of the United States of America. And boy, so much else happening. Accusations of a rigged election, spurious. Historic siege of the Capitol. And this week, of course, monumental no matter what. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have become the next president and vice president of the United States. That I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about Of course, on Inauguration Day, I had to go out there in the streets to ask people what it was like. Frankly, the streets were nearly empty. Because of the violence at the Capitol on the 6th, dozens of square blocks of the city were locked down tight and there were no personal vehicles permitted. My conversation with Master Sergeant George Roche, a public information officer for the National Guard, happened at a key moment. We have
1: approximately 2,300 Pennsylvania Guardsmen here. Oh,
0: no. so hold on one second. There goes Air Force One, Marine One. Marine One is it? Do you think? Oh yeah! Wow. That's the president. So we just, uh, Marine One. That's Marine yeah. One. Uh, so uh, yeah. he probably—that's uh, the president. Probably on that. Yep. That, air. Yeah. that was Marine One, the president's helicopter, flying him out of Washington D.C. Two hours ahead of the inauguration. And, and that's what this is all about—a peaceful transition. You know, the passing of the baton. As the master sergeant said, it was a peaceful transition of power, but it certainly wasn't a traditional one. For more than a century, every president has gone to the inauguration of his successor, acknowledging the new leader. That didn't happen this time. We've got more interviews from Inauguration Day and fresh analysis on sipping the political tea with Aaron Haynes and Jess Morales-Riquetto. Stay tuned for that. First, the congressional leader known for reclaiming her time, the inimitable Representative Maxine Waters. When Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol, security urged lawmakers to follow them to a secure location in the building. Most of them did, but Representative Maxine Waters stayed in her own office, where she felt she and her team would be safer. We spoke to her a week after the insurrection. Waters has represented part of Los Angeles in Congress for 30 years, including as a senior member of the Black Congressional Caucus, which she used to chair. Congresswoman Waters, thank you so much for joining me on our body politic I'm delighted
2: to be with you. It's been such a long time since I've seen you and talked to you, so thank you for getting me on today. Oh, absolutely, yeah, I fondly remember
0: um you know getting together back when I lived in Los Angeles, and um the whole world has changed, and yet some things haven't like the persistence of white supremacy. I'm just going to lay that on the table um how do you process this moment in history and what we need to do to move ahead? I'm going to get into the more immediate political questions, but just
2: on the big picture, what are we looking at? Well, you know, I think it's important that, number one, uh, we continued our work in uh, certifying the electoral votes that had come from all of the states, even after Uh, the attack on the Capitol uh, and the presence of uh, the uh, domestic terrorists uh, in our chambers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that was uh, very good. Uh, It sent a signal uh, that we were not going to be intimidated, uh, that we were not going to stop our work. And so uh, that's how I'm dealing with all of this. We've got work to do. And it's an important time in the history of this country, and we cannot back up. We have to move forward and do what is needed to be done to protect this democracy. What
0: do you think of what was widely suspected and now seems to be becoming clearer that there were members of the Capitol Police and other law enforcement agencies who may have been sympathizers or aiders and abettors here? What do we do about um you know, the the distinct possibility of infiltration of government branches by active white supremacists? Well, you know,
2: one of the things that I know, uh, you know, just being an African-American woman, is that uh, our society has systemic racism. And whether we're dealing with the health systems or with police departments or with, uh, you know, the criminal justice system in general, uh, that we are always in a position where there are those who hold those positions are racist. And uh, even though uh, we have to depend on them for security or for you know, health care or for education, uh, that we have people who are operating in all of our systems who are not in our best interest. So this is something uh, that we know happens. And I was not surprised, uh, disappointed, but not surprised uh, that we were learning that there were some who had joined in uh with uh this uh this invasion of uh, uh these democratic i mean these uh these domestic terrorists, and so yes uh, that is being I, that is being investigated we're going to have a deep investigation into everything that took place i don 't know if you know i've been telling the press uh, that I met with the Capitol Hill uh police chief days before. Uh, the mm-hmm. invasion. And I talked with him for one hour on the telephone, and I was assured mm. on every question that I asked uh, that they were in control, uh, that they knew what they were doing. And so it is a, a horrible experience. It is a daunting experience. It is one that, you know, uh, the United States of America is not expected to be in this position, uh, by other nations, uh, who, thought for sure uh, that the Capitol uh, was well secured and that this could not happen. Uh, But it did. The vast
0: majority of Republicans have not supported impeachment. Um, What options does that
2: leave you and your party? The whole idea is not to act based on what we think they will do or won't do. The most important thing for us is to act uh, to show that we're going to fight uh, to hold him and them accountable and that we're gonna send a message out there to the American public uh, that we're not backing away, that we think that this is uh, the worst president uh, in the history of this country. Uh, He has been divisive. Uh, He has uh, been a deplorable president and that uh, we're gonna fight Uh, to change the direction of this country with Biden and Harris?
0: We've seen a lot. I mean, it feels like we've lived several years just in the past few weeks, and we've seen Georgia um, go for the Democrats twice, once in the presidential election, and once in the special Senate elections, and Stacey Abrams and um, the New Georgia Coalition, and many other, you know, and say Ufo, who we who we interviewed from the New Georgia Coalition, and many others made that happen. Um, how do you feel about operating in a context where the Democrats control both
2: houses of Congress? What are you looking forward to, and what lies ahead? Well, I am absolutely elated about what happened in Georgia, and I'm so appreciative for Stacey Abrams, who had the vision of the possibility. Not only did she run for governor and come very close to winning, and that election was stolen from her, uh, but she has fought voter suppression, and she has believed in the possibility of winning Georgia. And so now we have two Georgia state senators who are coming to the Congress of the United States, who will put us in a position where Kamala Harris uh, can break any tie vote uh, based on, you know, what we have before uh, that, that body. And so we have an opportunity now uh, to do the kind of public policy that's in the best interest of all of the people of this country. And so when we're able to put on the president's desk legislation that we have not been able to pass, that's going to fall in a lot of directions. As chair of the Financial Services Committee, I'm focused on not only uh, doing away with certain kind of deregulation uh, that has been pushed forward by the Republicans uh, to enhance uh, those in the hedge fund uh, and the private equity uh, operations, uh, but I'm going to Pay a lot of attention to dealing with the homeless issue in this country. Uh, I have HUD in my jurisdiction and, uh, you know, we have a homelessness that is out of out of control all over this country. Uh, we're going to start by dealing with uh, a real response to covid And while we passed a bill, it was not good enough. We don't have enough money in there for stimulus. We don't have enough money in there for rent assistance. We don't have enough money in there for those who are unemployed. And so I think that we're going to have to start out uh, by uh, enhancing uh, that which we did uh, to make sure that we give more assistance uh, to all of those families out there that are suffering. And then I'm moving very aggressively on homelessness and housing Uh, We've got uh, all kinds of issues that Democrats have been, you know, so interested in and been the advocates of. And now we have an opportunity of not only passage through both of these houses, uh, but, you know, signature by the president of the United States of America.
0: What does it mean to you to see Senator Harris become vice president-elect Harris and then
2: vice president Harris? Well, of course, as you know, I and so many other women of color are just overjoyed uh, to see our image uh, you know at that level of government, uh, to have Kamala Harris uh, to be elected vice president of the United States is not only inspiring, but it really does speak to what is possible, even though we see the difficulties and the systemic racism, uh, that we're confronted with on a daily basis. When you take a look at her career, you know, coming out of California, having served, you know, as the attorney general there, uh, and, um, You know, the way that she has worked and overcome even the problems of the state of California, of being elected on a statewide area and then moving into having the audacity to run for president of the United States, which put her in a position for people to see her and to learn about her and her capabilities and her talent and then be chosen uh, by Biden to be the vice president. It is a wonderful, wonderful and inspiring thing.
0: Well, Congresswoman Waters, we are so grateful for your generous time and we wish you um, health and safety among everything else. Take good care.
2: Well, you're so welcome and thank you. It's good to get together with you again.
0: That was Maxine Waters, U.S. Representative from California. Coming up, Jess Morales-Riquetto and Aaron Haynes break down what you need to know in politics right now.
1: What folks are telling me is that, um, you know, the battle for the soul of the nation, right, is, is, is still underway.
0: You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Black women are making big moves in politics in every imaginable role. Glinda Carr is a political strategist who's out to supercharge that rise. She worked as a staffer in the New York State Legislature, then moved into education advocacy. In 2011, she and her friend Kimberly Peeler Allen co-founded Higher Heights, an organization Glinda says is a political home for Black women. She's now the president and CEO. Hi, Glinda. Hey, how are you? I am fantastic. And I'm just so impressed with the work that you've done with Higher Heights. Give me a really granular sense of what it is that you do when you talk about applying power. Does that mean raising money? Does that mean messaging? What sorts of things are we talking about?
3: So we look at Higher Heights works in kind of four pillars. One is research. And so we've partnered with the Center for American Women in Politics, the Brookings Institute, in um, our um, sister organization, Higher Heights Leadership Fund, um, which is where our research is housed. And for us, you can't develop a blueprint forward if you don't look back. So right, Sankofa. Um, which means, you know, to look back, right? And so our Status of Black Women in American Politics report that we do annually talks about uh, the history of Black women in elected leadership, the history of Black women voters in this country. Uh, And what you find is, although we've seen incremental gains over the last 10 years since Higher Heights was founded, Black women are still severely underrepresented and underserved in our American democracy. And although we just saw a record number of Black women swearing into the 117th Congress. We will have 25 Black women in the United States House of Representatives and zero, and let me say one more time, zero Black women in the U.S. Senate. We've only elected two Black women to the Senate. Um, we've never elected a Black woman governor in our country's history. We only have black five Black women serving as um, statewide executives um, we've only had 15 Black women serve in that role in our country's history. And so this research allows us um, to know where we've been, where we are, and to help develop a pathway forward. We also recruit, train, and support Black women to run for office. And so our hashtag Black Women Lead political webinar series allows Black women to sit in their homes across this country as they contemplate their political leadership. And that political leadership could be an activist, an advocate, um, could be someone interested in running for office. And it also provides um, training for women who are elected, who are thinking about stepping their leadership to the next level, either in their elected body or to run for higher office. Our political action committee um, endorses um, black women running for offices um, for Congress, statewide executive, and mayors of top 100 cities. And we strategically picked those three levels of offices because they're the greatest opportunities for expansion, but there are also um, offices that those candidacies sometimes are the hardest um, to overcome obstacles like fundraising or um, it, providing institutional support from many of our colleagues across the country. So it is about building this network of Black women and our allies to support our work and then to create the environment for Black women to vote, run, win, and lead with many of our you know digital programmings that we've done over the years.
0: You were instrumental in helping uh, Letitia James win her run for AG of New York. Tell us, you know, the kind of work that you do with a candidate, whether it's uh, AG James when she was running, or, you know, how do you support a candidate?
3: We're particularly um, very proud of our partnership with uh, Letitia Tish James. Here's a woman that, you know, started as a staffer. Of a New York State legislature legislator um, who ran for city council, who ran for a citywide office. She is exactly the type of um, leadership and uh, the blueprint. That I believe that black women across this country who are thinking about running for a local office, that is how we build the pipeline of black women leaders and and, and at the end of the day, she's a friend, she literally is a neighbor, and you know many of our members because you know, we're from New York, we were excited to rally around her um and that was you know endorsing you know raise funds, many of our members hosted um you know, house parties for her when we used to be able to go outside. Uh, We knocked on doors. We made phone calls. um, We hit social media. We hosted, you know, um, events um, to expand her brand and to excite an electorate to vote for her.
0: So what's changed, you know, in the the past decade? Has it become a friendlier environment for Black women to step into leadership to get the resources? Or is it just kind of same-ish? Um, and and if so, how has your work evolved either way? I would say two
3: things. We have made major strides forward. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't read daily articles, both in mainstream media and in many of our, um, you know, media that is targeted towards African-American or towards women about Black women's political power. There is clearly a recognition about Black women's political power by the masses. I also believe we've seen Black women step into that, that power, right? We are flexing a little harder these days. Like, yes, we did that. Um, but it's also we're demanding our return on our voting investment. We can't continue to be the voting block that delivers decisive victories um, for this country and still be underrepresented and underserved. So I certainly see that Black women are demanding our return. Mm-hmm. What we still need to do is push the notion of what the face of leadership looks like oftentimes black women still don't have institutional support party support mm-hmm. early in their candidacies and then there's still this this question around electability. if you look back um, to the Democratic primary in 2020, the women running and um, we the Democrats had the most diverse stage, um, you know, during the debates uh, and the, the amount of diversity in their the, those who ran for president. But the women often were always questioned about their electability, particularly Kamala Harris, right? Here is a woman who has literally run and won, you know, three levels of government. And there was a question about electability. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Glenda, best of luck with higher heights and, you know, everything that you are putting in place. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Glinda Carr is the CEO and president of Higher Heights. Coming up later this hour. The fact that immigration is such a high priority of the Biden administration,
4: not just the, you know, day one um, immigration bill that, you know, he's supposed to be moving in Congress, but also a bunch of executive orders that do really important things to reverse some of the worst abuses of the Trump administration. And this was like on, you know, like hour seven of him being the president.
0: Stay tuned for our political roundtable with contributors Aaron Haynes and Jess Morales-Riquetto. Wednesday was Inauguration Day. It was also the one-year anniversary of the first case of coronavirus in the United States. Since then, more than 400,000 Americans have died with 24 million infected. President Biden has pledged 100 million vaccinations in his first 100 days. The administration is mobilizing the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the National Guard to ramp up vaccinations and invoking federal law to make more medical equipment. Biden announced the plan on January 14th.
4: My fellow Americans, the decisions we make in the next few weeks and months are going to
0: determine whether we thrive in a way that benefits all Americans. Each week on our COVID update, as we tell the story of the pandemic, we explore inequality in healthcare access based on race, gender, and income. What's emerging now is that the vaccine rollout itself is part of the big picture on health disparities. According to analysis by Kaiser Health News, in some states, white residents are being vaccinated at two to three times the rate of Black residents. Here, like other areas of our society, the digital divide persists. When vaccination appointments have to be made online, those without Internet access or who have trouble using online systems are at a disadvantage. People of color are more likely to get sick with COVID and more likely to get seriously ill and die. But the vaccine distribution isn't prioritizing the groups at highest risk. The persons that we're affording, all of the vaccines that we have at this point, are predominantly of those persons who have a higher likelihood of actually living if they were to get the infection in the first place. And that's not right. That's Dr. Ebony Hilton, a critical care anesthesiologist in Charlottesville, Virginia, on CBS 19 News. Some states like Tennessee have set aside vaccine doses for hard-hit areas, and a year into the pandemic, the costs of COVID are not just physical, but mental and emotional. Next week, we'll talk about what the incoming CDC director called, quote, a behavioral health crisis that demands intervention. Sarah Eagleheart is a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe and grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. She describes herself as a social justice storyteller, and her work as an activist, author, media strategist, and producer spans a wide range of projects, including the Women's March organization that grew out of the protest at Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017. Sarah, it's great to have you with us. Yes, thanks for having me. You know, um... At Standing Rock, I interviewed Lakota elder and organizer Phyllis Young, longtime political organizer, and um, we had a conversation at the very moment that the Obama administration said that they were going to block, um, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline or at least call for um Renewed attention to the permitting process, and I said, you know, everyone was like shouting, and she and I was like, oh, are you excited? And she was like, well, the government breaks promises all the time, and then the Trump administration came in, and in fact, did um, reverse that decision. Now we are in a situation where we are likely to have the first ever Native American cabinet member in Deb Holland as Secretary of the Interior. How do you make sense of all of the different vectors of that discussion?
5: Yeah, I think it really comes down to, like you said, um, promises being kept, right? There have been um, so many incredible changes that have happened because America woke up. So many of our our people, our activists, our um, storytellers woke up and said, you know, you're right. We haven't been doing everything that we can. We're not as knowledgeable as we should have been. You know, we do need to stand up for each other. I really am so grateful to movement leaders within the Black Lives Matter movement and and so many Mm -hmm. other movements because after George Floyd, I know they were so intentional about saying Black and Indigenous. And Mm -hmm. I think because of them saying things like Black and Indigenous we saw change happen on the mascots front, right? We saw the R word NFL team go away. And as somebody that has been fighting against stereotypes and discrimination since 16 years old, I can tell you I was so excited to actually see some action. Um, Mm -hmm. But we have a long way to go.
0: Tell me who you were at 16. You talk about standing up for yourself, standing up for your community from the age of 16. Who were you at 16?
5: Oh my gosh. I was, I'm an identical twin. Um, My twin is Emma Corrine. She's a psychotherapist. And Mm -hmm. now (laughs) we were living um, on the tribal reservation of Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in a little um, tribal community that was next to a white farming town. And they had a Ceremony, a homecoming ceremony. I put up my quotes (laughs) that um, was the mascot was the Warriors. And the whole enactment, which was a homecoming drama, was five warrior princesses who were most of the time non native. They Mm -hmm. dressed up um, as native women. And the big chief, who was the homecoming king and the medicine man who, I don't know who he was, but he he danced around the women and he chose one by looking in their mouth, in their ears and weighing them. You know, oh like, my, wow. That's a lot. I know. And so at 16, my twin sister and I were watching this saying like, oh my gosh, why is nobody doing anything? This is wrong. And we just decided we're going to protest. We had no idea what protest was for men. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were just these young, two, th- two little young things who was like, no, we got to change this. And um, we had to protest for four years before they finally ended it. But it took four mm-hmm. years for that to happen. So of course, that really laid the groundwork, I think, for me in my life, just as a storyteller, an activist, an advocate, and also standing up for women.
0: And so um, tell us a little bit more about your work with the Women's March um, after the election of Donald Trump.
5: Four years ago, Women's March was just being birthed and there was so much that was happening. People were organizing. It was going to be the Million Women March on Washington and um I was noticing as I looked at the platform, as I looked at the committees, that there was no representation of Native Americans whatsoever on any committee or in the platform. And I began asking questions. Yeah. And I began to talk to different leaders out there, Indigenous women leaders. And, you know, we were able to get in touch with Women's March leaders. And, you know, they stood up and they said, oh, you're right we didn't (laughs) include Mm -hmm. um, you. And so people like Carmen Perez and Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory and Bob Bland, you know, they did step forward and they made space for us on the different committees. So we were able to support the unity principles and change them to include us. But it also showed where we really needed to step up and we decided to uh, organize indigenous women's rise we had no idea that over a thousand women were going, Native women, were going mm. to gather to march um, at in
0: Washington, D.C. One last question. If you have a chance to ask Vice President Kamala Harris a question or make a proposal to her for something you'd like to see happen, one single thing, what would it be?
5: I guess I would ask uh, Vice President Kamala Harris to continue to ensure that Indigenous women are not only represented but heard within the administration. That cultural rights and that um, climate justice and sacred sites are protected. As much as I I support um, and voted for Kamala Harris, I also know there's we have a, a long way to go too. Um, because so many tribes were have not been happy with her. Um, voting record in, in California. And so I really, really, really hope and pray to see indigenous rights, tribal rights, sovereignty, that all of that is upheld and expanded during their administration. Our people need true change right now that is meaningful and that is going to to create um, new opportunities for our people because we just can't keep doing the same back and forth dance that so many you know, generations of presidents have done with our people.
0: Wow, that is that is a, an incredible um, exhortation, and we're going to leave it there. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Fry. That was Sarah Eagleheart. Each week, I ask you to participate in the creation of our show by calling into the platform Speak. This month, in honor of the events at the White House, I want to know, if this was your first day in office, what would be your top priority and why? Leave us a message by calling 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. Don't forget, it's dot .show. Coming up next... Aaron Haynes and Jess Morales-Riquetto lead our new weekly roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea. For
1: those of us who are uh, politics reporters who are covering, governing in in Washington, we have a new administration to focus on. They spent the past four years covering uh, the former president, and now they're, you know, going to be spending the next four covering the new president uh, and vice president. And so Trump is going to continue to be a part of the media ecosphere, but, but I do think... Uh, that the era of of us kind of uh, covering him obsessively and relentlessly, uh, in large part because he was the president of the United States, uh, you know, I, I think that that is probably a chapter that has closed
0: last couple of weeks in the U.S. have been one wild ride. And here to put it all in context, we've got the second installment of our new roundtable, sipping the political tea with Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, and Jess Morales-Riquetto, civic engagement director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance.
1: I'm wondering, uh, from, from either of you, with the events that we, we've seen of, of the past week, was there a moment that struck you, politically or otherwise, uh, from, from uh, you know, this this transition of power? Uh,
4: Jess, what about you? Okay, maybe this is frivolous, but I was here for J-Lo, I was here for uh, the jewelry, yeah. I was here for the hair. Absolutely not frivolous.
1: <laughs> not frivolous at all.
4: I mean, I think I think
1: most of the executive orders were under that ponytail. I'm pretty sure. <laughs>
4: It was great. And then her little Instagram photo shoot, just lounging like prom style with A-Rod on the Capitol steps. It's like, that is not what people are usually doing on the Capitol steps.
1: It's it's what you would expect J-Lo to do at at the Capitol. Uh, She and A-Rod are going to have a photo shoot. And then (laughs) Vinny Medina just kind of gratuitously in the shot. I was like, okay, this is this is amazing. Uh, Agree. That was a moment. That was a moment from from this week that I will not soon forget. Farai, what about you?
0: Amanda Gorman all day, every day. Oh, yeah. I love her so much. You know, what strikes me is that there's bookends. You know that the poet mm. and uh, philanthropist Elizabeth Alexander gave the poem at the first Obama inauguration. And now you have another Black woman from a different generation, just as brilliant, giving this inaugural poem. And to me, that's a a great bookend to the arc of history.
1: I think that's absolutely right. You know, art matters, poetry matters. And and in these types of moments, you know, I think that that kind of thing can really capture kind of the sweep of history. And I think that Amanda Gorman certainly did a beautiful
0: job of that. Absolutely.
1: Uh, So there were reportedly more troops in Washington, D.C. this week uh, for the inauguration than there were in U.S. wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria combined. Uh, You know, Farai, you're staying in the D.C. area at the moment. I'm just wondering kind of what it feels like to you uh, to have such heavy military presence. What was that like?
0: You know, it was really fascinating. I I have never seen Washington, D.C. locked down like this. And it was a huge pain and a huge cost to the city. And what I mean by that is that certain places of work were closed. A lot of people who had to go to work couldn't take the metro because it was shut down like many different stations. So the impact of the largely white-led domestic terrorism at the Capitol then ripples out to working-class Black and brown Mm -hmm. people and white people who can't get to work, many of whom aren't going to get a paycheck if they don't get to work, who work jobs Mm. that depend on shift work. So I think that in addition to everything else being a national security risk, violence, a COVID super spreader event, the siege of the Capitol also took money out of the pockets of working class people in the D.C. area. That said, I am so grateful that the presence prevented any further domestic terrorism on Inauguration Day, which was a distinct threat. I'm grateful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, That that is an interesting uh, point that you make. Uh, Listen, uh, you were super brave and and pretty calculating about when you went out uh, to the streets in in the early hours of Inauguration Day. Uh, I'm wondering about kind of how you made the decision to go out uh, and and, and what you learned uh, when you were out there. Was there kind of a palpable shift in in, in the mood of the city kind of as you had that transition of power? Was there anything that you noticed about how the city felt uh, kind of as the day went on?
0: You know, I decided to go out early in the morning because, you know, the inauguration started at 1030. And I figured if there was a risk of violence would happen when people were Entering the inauguration, you know, and and my goal was to get out in and out of the city before nine a.m., which I did. Um, and uh, the thing is, there are people who of every race who believe that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Again, that's disinformation. But I talked to two black young men who are entrepreneurs who came to sell shirts were very disappointed that the lockdown meant that they couldn't transact business, and were very thoughtful. I would describe them as effectively black libertarians um, who believe in trickle down economics. And we don't have time to get into the nine and a half minutes of tape I got with them, but I, I wanted to um, play you a little bit of Cam. Because
3: I, really, I don't support Trump as a person. I support uh, his business ethics. You know, yeah, you know. So the public doesn't want to hear the truth. So the truth is. The truth is, we made a lot of money. truth is, as a Black American, more of my Black brothers and sisters had jobs during Trump's presidency than ever. So the truth is, we were making money, you know? The truth is, I started my business during Trump's presidency, you know? So, I mean, it is what it is, you know? People take what they want to take from things. Mm-hmm. I'm all about, you know, money.
0: You know, and and that's what I love about field reporting, is that people are not stereotypes. You know, if almost anyone of any race had seen these two brothers, they would not have said, like, Black libertarian Trump supporters who believe the election was stolen. And there was also a lot of, you know, heartfelt emotion, and some people came almost to tears as they were discussing their hopes and dreams and fears for the country, and one of them was uh, Crystal DeClear.
1: I do hope that more people can reach the American dream And my fear is that they can't. My fear is that we will continue to criminalize poverty, that we will continue to criminalize color, that we will continue to criminalize gender.
0: And in the back, uh, you know, Crystal actually worked um, in the Obama administration. She's still, you know, working in Washington. And um, it was a windy day, so the sound's a little choppy, but you can hear the emotion in her voice, and you can also hear the sirens in the background. And one other thing we talked about was that You know, she was in her office um, in the, you know, extended Capitol area when the siege of the Capitol happened. And she said there were sirens for 15 minutes and and it was really emotionally hard for her to be in that space. And so I'm looking at the questions of how people like Cam and Crystal occupy the same country and come to hopefully— a reconciliation about how we can move forward together despite ideological differences.
4: In this new Biden administration, uh, there are so many historic people who are the first. Um, Of course, the vice president herself, but also I'm thinking of Dr. Rachel Levine, who will be the first openly trans person appointed to a Senate confirmed seat uh, to be the assistant secretary of health. Confirmation hearings started this week. What can, you know, I'm an organizer, or can someone like me or just any American do to make sure that that continues to be true, that we remain on this trajectory?
1: Well, I will say that, that you know, in talking to organizers like you, uh, you know, what folks are telling me is that, um, you know, the battle for the soul of the nation, right, is, is, is still underway. And part of that is continuing to push for, uh, you know, the things that you... Worked for in the election. Uh, now that the folks that, that a lot of you were able to get elected are governing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so keeping diversity and and, and diverse leadership as, as part of that agenda front and center is absolutely something I hear uh, from organizers as a continued priority and and something that they expect. Uh, you know, now that they have done the work of uh, you know registering and turning out and. Campaigning and, and getting folks uh, into office that they want uh, to focus on their priorities and that is certainly one.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, for I in the weeks um, following, you know, the coup attempt, it's being revealed that. Off-duty police officers were part of the mob that stormed the Capitol building. You know, a few days before the inauguration, it was reported that 12 members of the National Guard were removed from inauguration. What can we do about the infiltration of extremist ideologies in military and law enforcement?
0: In the Military Times, uh, a few years ago, they asked, how many of you know someone who's a a white supremacist in the military? And I've talked to service members about it, you know? Uh, And the reality is there has to be there has to be the opposite of don't ask, don't tell. There has to be an ask and there has to be a tell. Mm. And what makes things complicated is that, of course, the military runs on social cohesion where you're supposed to be completely in sync with the members of your unit and the chain of command. But if you are seeing active white supremacist ideology, that's a threat to the entire military and to the entire country.
4: Erin, I've been... I've been like asking all the journalists in my in my life this because I think you all have a like a big challenge ahead of you. Now that Trump's out, how do you cover a former president, head white supremacist and his white supremacist allies moving forward?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, the outgoing president kind of recedes into uh, the background, you know, out of respect for his successor, uh, you know, I don't necessarily know that that, that is going to be the case uh, with, with former President Trump now, because he does, you know, have a substantial following uh, still and has flirted with the idea of, of running for president again in four years. So there, there is that. Uh, but look, you know, for those of us who are uh, politics reporters who are covering, governing in, in Washington, we have an, a new administration to focus on. Uh, and, and I do think that that is going to be, uh, you know, the focus of uh, those kinds of folks. Uh, you know, they spent the past four years covering uh, the former president, and now they're, you know, going to be spending the next four covering the new president uh, and vice president. And so Trump is going to continue to be a part of the media ecosphere. But, but I do think uh, that the era of, of us kind of uh, covering him obsessively and relentlessly uh, in large part because he was the president of the United States. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that that is probably a chapter that has closed.
4: Yeah, but he's not going away. Certainly the impact of his policies is still being felt, even though we've inaugurated President Biden. And sure, what do you think is the best course of action for kind of covering Trump's impact on this country, even when he's gone? Yeah, I, I will say that is a continued storyline, mm-hmm. right, for for
1: us. Uh, you know, what is Trump's imp- continued impact uh, on this electorate,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Um, it, it's not just about what he does, but it is also about how voters are continuing to respond to him. It's also about how the Republican Party is continuing to respond yeah. to him, right? Uh, and so I, I do think uh, that it is on us to continue to report uh, that out. And, and, and if Trump ends up being a foil to, uh, you know, uh, the Biden agenda, Uh, you know, kind of what that dynamic looks like and and how how we can, the ways in which we can show that playing out.
0: And I would put in a pitch for field reporting. I mean, I'm someone who does a lot of different types of reporting, data-driven reporting, historical analysis, but field reporting gives me life. And as many people have said, Trump is gone, but Trumpism isn't. And to know how alive and well Trumpism is, you have to leave washington, d c. and New York. Yes, and you have to leave the major cities. And you also have to disabuse yourself of the notion that trumpism you want to you want to understand how Trumpism is doing among a lot of different demographics, including people of color.
1: Jess, I want to turn to you because um, President Biden has has promised this sweeping overhaul. Of of uh, America's immigration laws, which which would include an eight year path to citizenship for Dreamers, uh, I'm wondering uh, if you think that those proposals go far enough.
4: Yeah, I mean it's so exciting the fact that immigration is such a high priority of the Biden administration, not just the you know day one um, immigration bill that you know he's supposed to be moving in Congress, but also a bunch of executive orders that do really important things to reverse some of the worst abuses of the Trump administration. And this was like on, you know, like hour seven of him being the president. So it is really, really exciting. And we don't often get to win in the immigration rights movement. So I feel the need to be extremely celebratory in that regard. Some of these, you know, some of these executive orders we've been fighting for almost four years, I was reflecting that, um, you know, I helped, uh I played a big role in planning the Muslim ban protests, and I was really reflecting that you know it was almost to the letter um four years ago i we were getting people to go out at airports and people were talking about you know them being spontaneous and now here we are, the new president is signing an order that overturns like one of the you know sort of big moments of of the resistance to Trump in the last four years so what a difference an election makes what a difference a few years make but I would say, there's more to do in these policies in that this is just about the introduction of us., you know, a new u s. immigration system. We're calling for a system that is fair and humane and functional, and that really is going to take passing legislation in Congress to see real changes. A, a huge thing that happened is in the wee hours of the first day, DHS agency issued a moratorium on deportations for 100 days, which is a truly historic, that's never happened before. Um, we've never done that. And there there will be a 100-day review of the deportation policies. And there is a lot of hope that at the end of that 100 days, there could be a real overhaul of ICE and CPB and potentially even a decision to continue the moratorium on deportations, potentially indefinitely. And that would really honestly be such a huge day in America. I'm trying to stay optimistic. It's a new administration. I'm a little bit skeptical, but trying to stay optimistic.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the four crises that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris uh, said that they expected to inherit, you know, upon taking office uh, is racial inequality, racial injustice, uh, systemic racism, right? Uh, And so, uh, you know, Joe Biden said that, that uh, you know, he had a plan for Black, black America. Uh, civil rights organizations, the leaders of those groups have, have certainly pressed their agenda, uh, you know, as, as this administration was coming into office. Uh, I'm wondering what we can expect to see come out of that, uh, especially for the people who brought him into office. We know, you know, that's largely Black voters, particularly Black women uh, across the country that voted for, for him and, and Vice President Harris.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Biden plan for Black America talks about advancing economic mobility of African Americans, closing the racial wealth gap. And that's going to require some deft maneuvering with uh, the people who essentially pay for politics, for the most part, uh, on on certain levels, which is corporations. There are obviously a lot of individual political donors, but corporate donations to politics are huge, and the Democratic Party— Takes a bunch of them, just like the Republican Party. So I'm curious to see, um, with this focus on economic equality, how much uh, the Biden administration is willing to hold its own donors to task.
1: Well, I think that that is a good note uh, for us to end on. We covered a lot, you guys. A lot is already happening. We sure did. <laughs> a lot is, you know, as this administration is taking uh, shape, uh, we are certainly uh, off to a running start uh, in, in uh both in what they're doing and us trying to stay on top of it all. So uh, thanks for keeping up with us all and let's do it again next week. Uh, Jess, thanks for hanging out again. Thank you. This is so fun. And Farai, you know, it's always a pleasure. Oh, I love it, Erin. Thank you. Until next week, everybody stay safe and take care.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our political booker is Mary Knowles. Priscilla Alabi is a producer. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Bettencourt, Michael Castaneda, Sarah McClure, Virginia Laura, and Kojin Tashiro.
1: Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.